I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Yuna Stepman. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. All right, NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show is packed, as usual. We always say that, but it's always true. Um, the four segments we're going to tackle today, uh, we're starting with Josh, who's, who's talking about the saga of Elon Musk and Twitter. Um, we spent a lot of time on that deal earlier in its uh, life cycle. Um, and we don't actually really know where we are in the life cycle uh, at this point. So Josh is going to help us uh, figure that out. Um, I'm going to talk about how the, the really disturbing viral video from New York um, and Patrick how- Boyle, please call the operator. That was the intercom at work. Uh, I'm going to talk about the, the super dis disturbing video of the bodega clerk in New York who was sent to Rikers Island, um, had his bail released, and we'll get into all of that. It's, it's basically the left criminalizing self-defense. Um, and Inez is going to talk about a, another truly disturbing uh, thing that emerged from our country this week, which would be the uh, exchange that Senator Hawley had with a witness at an abortion hearing uh, in the Senate Judiciary Committee where she claimed that, no, claimed is the wrong word insisted that men could get pregnant. And then Ben is going to cover uh, the tragedy out of Japan, uh, the assassination of Shinzo Abe. So with that, I'll toss it to you, Josh. Okay, so welcome back, everyone. So we did a whole special episode at the time that Elon Musk announced that he was going to purchase Twitter on the implications of that transaction, the possible fallout of that transaction, what kind of ripple effects it would have in Silicon Valley and all that stuff. So it is worth, I think, leading off the show with a discussion of the fact that this thing now looks like it it is probably not going to go through. And so Elon Musk has now formally walked away from his $44 billion purchase of Twitter. Twitter's share price, like the share prices of so many other tech companies in recent months, has has totally plummeted. It, is, it, it, is, it has gone down by double-digit percentage. Um, and, and a lot of the reason that Elon Musk has publicly stated in recent weeks for his decision to walk away from this deal is that he's he has failed to get transparency as to the percentage of fake spam or bot accounts on Twitter. So for those of you who have a Twitter or are familiar with Twitter of the the prevalence, perhaps you might even say the ubiquity of bot accounts has been a longstanding problem really going back to the 2016 presidential campaign which I think kind of um, was a news cycle or, or a period of time that really kind of thrust this issue front and center. But Elon is, for various reasons, not satisfied with what he has gotten out of Twitter. So he is walking away from the deal. And, and we have now, just since last Friday, have seen the commencement of what's probably going to be some pretty nasty uh, litigation, some pretty nasty kind of uh, cross litigation. Uh, you know, Elon and kind of typically flippant Elon fashion kind of tweeted out this meme, uh, where it's kind of like, a, I, I'm, not, I'm not able to, to describe it sufficiently on air without showing it, but it was kind of like four quadrants. And the final quadrant was him like laughing, saying like, oh, because in the discovery in this litigation, we're actually going to discover the presence of bots on Twitter, right? So uh, look, I guess that a lot of quite there are a lot of questions that kind of follow on from this. But the point here is that the world's wealthiest man, the so-called benevolent billionaire who was who was saying all the right things, who purported to believe in, and you know, for what for whatever I know, I mean, maybe, I'm sure he perhaps does believe 
in free speech and the importance of kind of securing the public square for open dialogue to, to make sure that conservatives and, and those who subscribe to various other forms of wrong think are not censored. He has now walked away. So the question that I have going forward is, you know, is, is really what does that mean? I mean, I, I, I've kind of been tempted to kind of put on my old corporate law hat because I used to actually be a, a corporate lawyer and kind of get in there in the merger agreement and look at the forms of remedy. But I'll be totally honest with you, I'm too scarred from previous life experiences to kind of go back down that rabbit hole. So I, I, I'm choosing to focus more on kind of the big tech aspect of this and less kind of the corporate law, corporate litigation aspect of this. And I guess the question, and we can kind of throw it to the panel pretty early on, is where do we go from here? I mean, where do what does this mean for the future of big tech? And look, I guess my own two cents is that, uh, you know, this should only, I think, make us double down even more in our convictions that there has to be a public policy solution to this. Um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, obviously after January 6th, we saw what happened with, with the collusive conduct with Amazon, Apple, and Google spiking parlor. And now we've seen the so-called benevolent billionaire. I mean, the, the so-called build your own Google talking point now has been shown time and time again to be just beyond dead. So whether it's 230 antitrust common carry regulation or, or you know, some, some, some combination thereof where the, where the specific remedy ought to be tailored to the nature of the, of the specific platform or antitrust might make more sense for an Amazon, but perhaps common carry regulation makes more sense for a Facebook or a Meta. You know, that's what I've certainly been espousing over the past couple of years. And I think kind of the implosion of the Musk acquisition of Twitter should only make us double down on those convictions even more. One other question that I'd be kind of curious for y'all's thoughts on is whether Elon actually ever intended for this to go through. I mean, there is a billion dollar breakup fee written into the merger agreement that obviously is part of what's being litigated right now. On the one hand, you have to be kind of crazy to you know never intend to go through with something with a billion dollar breakup fee. But again, this is the world's wealthiest man, and and, and you know he is an interesting character. I think to put it mildly, is never entirely sure what is going on uh, in Elon Musk's. Mind. So I'd be curious for y'all's thoughts on whether he actually intended to go through with this. I will say a little egg on, on my face personally. I was certainly one of the ones who was very kind of white-pilled and like very happy with the announcement of this acquisition. I, ha I had some close friends at the time caution me and say, you should temper your expectations. There's a real chance this thing might go through. I kind of casually dismissed it and I feel... I feel kind of silly in retrospect, but um, you know, I'll kind of just toss it open on, the, on those notes. So the, the two questions for you guys are, what does it mean for the future of kind of the conservative approach to big tech? And I'd be curious for your thoughts on whether Elon actually intended for this thing to go through in the first place. I was gonna say, Josh, it sounded like you were talking about Inez, the people who were uh, saying, you know, let's, let's pump the brakes, <laughs> pump the brakes. But I actually think that's a, it's a good point because um, I, I think Elon Musk, if he wanted to buy Twitter, he could. Right, and that was sort of always the point of uh, the, the way that people were were approaching it at the time, which is that if somebody with enough money sees the value in heterodox leadership at Twitter, um, they can buy it. I just don't think, I think Elon Musk uh, probably, it's sort of like when Donald Trump decided to run for president, uh, right? Like he thought, you know, this is actually a great sort of um, public relations exercise. And if I'm president, I'm president. And I think that's sort of Elon Musk's approach to Twitter. If This is a great public relations exercise to hash out some important questions um, and put me at the forefront of that conversation. And if I end up with Twitter, I end up with Twitter. But um, the bots thing always seemed to be a poison pill. Uh, the way that he had talked about the bots issue, it always seemed like that is because I think everybody knows that that was false on Twitter's end. So 
Elon Musk was testing Twitter. Um, and if he wanted to go through with it, he, he absolutely could find a way to go through with it. I think the bottom line is um, what a lot of us were saying, Twitter just at the end of the day, isn't that freaking valuable. It's a piece of garbage. Nobody should overpay that much money to own it. Um, it's it's extremely valuable in the sense that it's, it controls our discourse um, with a lot of consequence, but not a lot of people actually use it. Um, so it, it's valuable in that sense. If, if you really, if you want to manipulate the, the dialogue um, and you want to make sure that everybody refers to um, men as women and all of that in political conversations, then you, you sort of see the value in it. But at the end of the day, as a, as a product, um, it's, it just doesn't have that value. So I, I do think it's important to say that like, if he did want to, he could, he, he really could, but why would anybody actually want to? Um, that's the question. And that's the question I've always had, uh, but he seemed to have a better answer to it at one point. So I'll kick it over to everyone else. Yeah, um, I'll jump in here since Emily called me out as the the pessimist on this. Although, <laughs> um, although I mean, I, I definitely I thought this deal was going to go through too. So it's not that my pessimism was based on the intricacies of corporate <laughs> mergers or anything like that. Um, but I was surprised that this this deal was seemingly going through. And and in any case, um, I wholeheartedly agree with Josh on this one. This is a I would just change one word of what you said. I would call it a political question which um, you know, implies public policy solutions, but not necessarily. In this case, I think it does. But um, the reason why I, I use that distinction is because so many things have been taken out of the political realm, like capital P, classic politics. Um, this is very clearly a question that impacts um, the national discourse. It impacts, I would say it impacts freedom of speech, even if it doesn't impact the freedom of speech, right? Um, and, and it touches on, I think, what are increasingly going to be the questions of the regime, right, where we have um, essentially a private wing doing things like government that are wholly against our tradition, wholly against our uh, conception of our own self-government and liberty, um, but are not, you know, technically connected to the government, even though they're communicating back and forth all the time, and therefore are evading constitutional protections on that basis. Um, so I think that's kind of the shape of a lot of these problems. Uh, but I don't think I never thought that even though it was enjoyable watching Elon Musk troll, um, troll the left and watching the reaction um, to the possibility that he might own Twitter. Um, I, I never thought that's really a larger scale solution to this problem. Um, the, the problem is, as Josh said, political. Uh, the, the other aspect of this, um, in terms of, of what Emily was saying about whether Twitter is actually valuable or not, I mean, and, and here I'm, I'm going to quote Emily back to herself, which is, um, she often says the value of Twitter, and she, she mentioned it here, but I just want to emphasize that point. Uh, that the value of Twitter is similar to the value of something like Jeff, Jeff Bezos buying WAPO, right? It's not an actual asset as a company, but it's an enormous asset to shape the country. Um, and that's how people should be thinking about it. So I actually think Twitter is very valuable. It's just not traditionally valuable as a company, uh, just like the Washington Post is not traditionally valuable as a company. I'm so smart. Yeah, Twitter is valuable to the extent that it shapes and molds the American mind to the extent that it is, at least as of now, one of the primary tools by which the ruling class uh, monopolizes its favored narratives. And so I think akin to that Jeff Bezos sort of analogy, this would be something of a loss leader for Elon Musk if uh, he had taken control of the platform and operated in the way he indicated he would. Um, and 
I, I should say, you know, who knows if the deal is actually dead? You never know, actually, until that the agreement is fully terminated and all parties have resolved whatever their disputes are. So let's see how this ends up. But let's assume for, for the sake of argument that it is fully dead. For one thing, this demonstrates, obviously, you know, there's, the idea is dead of build your own Twitter, but so ought the idea be dead that well, you can get behind your own billionaire to buy any of these institutions and to take over these institutions with a with a handful of you know white knights stepping in, uh, and that that goes to Josh's point of we ought to be looking at the much broader remedies that ought to be put in place in order to combat the fact that these institutions have been monopolized and weaponized against roughly half the country. Plus, uh, now that said, I do think there were some positives that did emerge from this. One of them is that it exposed. Uh, Twitter staff and how disingenuous and, um, you know, frankly, clownish they were in the struggle sessions that they had uh, and, you know, their lamentations over the fact that he might actually be purchasing this entity. In some ways, it should show you that the emperor sort of has no clothes, except again, that this platform is still so powerful or perceived to be so powerful by our betters. It also exposed a whole of ruling class counter response which I think even goes to, you know, in the intelligence officials who were putting out these letters talking about how, you know, we need to strike down this potential antitrust legislation in Congress or other efforts to combat big tech, precisely because they view this as so valuable to dominating in public discourse. And so to that end, I do think there was a valuable a counter response here. And the one kind of outstanding question for me is, what's the real reason that Elon Musk ultimately was interested and then that he pulled out of this deal. And I do wonder if all the scrutiny he was subjected to, his businesses were subjected to, his personal life was subjected to during this actually ultimately deterred him from going through with the deal, if that potentially was really what killed it and not business reasons or any of the other uh, myriad alibis that have been put forth. Last point I'll make just tangentially related, there was one piece of good news on the big tech front. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. There's some news out of a court a ruling that states, namely Missouri and Louisiana, who had filed a complaint about anti-First Amendment collusion between the administration officials and big tech will get expedited discovery with respect to that, that uh, collusion allegation. So perhaps we will finally get some insights into the machinations between government officials, the ex-DGB Disinformation Governance Board uh, and these tech companies with respect to the narratives that they have suppressed and the censorship that they've engaged in. So maybe one small glimmer of hope uh, in a sea of gloominess here. So we'll transition then to our second topic, which is speaking of gloominess, um, fairly disturbing, but I think there's a broader uh, point to be made that's really important in this moment when violent crime rates are rising in some cities, uh, actually many cities, major, major cities, uh, big cities, Washington, DC, Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, obviously, it's not as though all crime is going up everywhere, New York City, um, but violent crime is going up in many major cities. And uh, whenever that happens, it has a sort of psychological effect on uh, people, on taxpayers. And progressive prosecutors have been linked to this by creating incentives uh, or, or taking away those disincentives. And I think that's an important point. Um, but the case of Jose Alba, who was a manning the desk at a, a 
clerk um, in a bodega, as J Jill Biden would say, a, a bodega in New York City, um, when a, a man whose girlfriend had not been able to purchase a bag of chips from Alba because I believe she didn't have enough money on her EBT card, um, came up and started physically assaulting this man who's I believe 61. Um, so you have a much younger, bigger man starting to rough him up behind his own counter. Alba stabbed him to death. Um, the girlfriend was involved in the assaults as well. Alba was immediately sent to Rikers Island on $250,000 bail. That was later moved down to $50,000. Um, but he is dang lucky this was on camera because even with it being on camera, the progressive prosecutor in New York City sent him to Rikers and uh, lowered his bail to $50,000. So it's a sad story that anybody's life was taken and that anybody had to take a life. Um, that's, that is, it's, it's tragic that Alba himself had to be put in that position while he was doing his job. But I'll toss it open to the group just with a, a question of, does this not affect the way people see their ability to defend themselves? And does it not affect the way criminals see people understanding their ability to defend themselves? That is, if people are nervous to defend themselves because they'll end in you know, the, someone's death, their attacker, their assaulter's death, and then half a quarter of a million dollar bail be in Rikers, um, doesn't that not give criminals more incentive if they know that, uh, you know, your, your average person is less likely to defend themselves because they're scared of the prosecutors? It just seems like our ecosystem um, sort of legally and interpersonally is being severely disrupted. Yeah, I mean, the answer to both your questions is, of course, um, of course, it affects the way that both criminals and, um, you know, law abiding citizens see the, the, the dangers around them in, in, in a, an urban environment with, with quickly rising crime. Um, th this is very clearly to me the, the, the Bernie Getz case of 2022, right? Um, just to, to recall back to the 80s when New York was uh, pre-Giuliani, there was a case um, involving a man uh, named Bernie Getz who was on the subway, which was then a hotbed for crime as it's starting to become now, um, a guy uh, he kind of watched a band of guys position themselves around him in the subway. And then one of them came up and asked him for $5 upon which he took out his illegal concealed carry gun and shot all five of them, I believe. Um, although I think at least half of them survived. Um, and, and so the, the case turned around whether or not it was reasonable <laughs> to pull out your gun and shoot five people upon being asked for $5 on the subway. And the people of New York essentially said, yes, in this environment, it is reasonable to assume that you are about to be mugged um, or, or uh, seriously injured or even killed uh, in that environment. And I, I think this is this has a lot of the same hallmarks of that case, except that it's actually stronger, I think, legally. Um, since, since this guy actually put his hands on him, started very clearly a intense physical altercation. You can see that on the video. Um, so actually, this guy has a much stronger case. We'll see what happens when it goes to a jury. Um, I, I tend to think that the jury is, in, even in New York City, is a lot fairer than Alvin Bragg. Um, but but that remains to be seen. Perhaps we'll see the the result of the debate Ben and I had actually uh, what a week or two ago on on this podcast about whether um, the institution of the jury is is uh, overly corrupted like the rest of the justice system or not. But um, this is a very clear case of self defense. I think this case 
will resonate with um, not only people in New York City, but people living in cities across America, um, of, of, as the case of, of somebody who was a law-abiding citizen, um, who was a victim of the escalating, es escalating violence in the city, um, and then defended himself and was, uh, you know, sort of held up by the system as the problem. Um, when in fact, and, and actually, I don't know, Emily, you might've mentioned this and I might've missed it, but the woman who initially started the altercation, um, she was not arrested, right? Uh, she that's, wasn't- That's correct. She, yeah. was, she was not arrested. She was not charged, um, even with some more minor offense. So that that just adds to the egregiousness of um, the charging decisions and, and the, the prosecutor's decisions in this case. Well, let me just say, in this case, I am far more confident that the trial will be held in front of a true jury of peers uh, than in the a Michael Sussman type case. And I think- DC has a special bond of peers. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. It depends on what the definition of peers is here, I guess. Uh, but, but I will say that I think this story is a microcosm of a much broader theme that, of course, we've seen play out in a number of cities and maybe even at the federal level, which is that we've had not just the perversion of our justice system, but the total inversion of our justice system. And I, and I think it manifests itself in a few ways. First of all, with progressive DAs like an Alvin Bragg, essentially you could make the case that they view their jobs as defending criminals over defending law-abiding citizens. So in, in essence, they believe in perpetrating injustice by protecting those who are assaulting justice. Uh, a, a couple other points. You know, the whole progressive view of criminal justice in, in large part is that victims are the aggressors and the aggressors are the victims of society. And so that the way that you stop uh, essentially creating more criminals is by not policing criminality. And that is exactly what is at play here. But the opposite side of the coin is that anyone who would dare defend themselves against criminality must be treated as a criminal and punished for it. I think we see this in all two stark terms in this individual case here in New York. And, and the last thing I'll say is you know, this is after all of these cities, of course, impose the harshest possible regulation so that law-abiding people cannot arm and defend themselves against the criminal chaos that the progressives policies created in the first place. So you are left as a law-abiding citizen defenseless and at a deficiency in facing a justice system that prioritizes the criminals over their victims. I don't think the vast majority of Americans, even coastal elites, ultimately like the implications of where this goes, but we have yet to see them vote all the bums out. Let's see what happens in the next couple of years. So I'm happy that Nez mentioned the Bernie Getz case from the 1980s because I, I had the exact same initial thought when I saw this story come out and saw this video. I, in fact, it kind of gave me a throwback. I remember my first year of law school at the University of Chicago, my crim law professor actually cold called me for the Bernie Getz case because I was already kind of like an outspoken gun rights supporter conservative. And my, my heart just started pounding. I was like, oh my God, like my lib classmates are going to try and like seize on like a faux pas, whatever. But it ended up going okay here. But I do think that this case has very strong analogies to that. Look, it's worth going back to like first principles here, I think a little bit. The notion of self-defense, of striking someone who is going to or imminently strike you is deeply deeply rooted, obviously, in the Western legal tradition, it's certainly deeply rooted in the Anglo-American common law tradition. 
uh, to kind of even just go, go, go almost like sectarian religious perspective, from a Jewish perspective, there is a direct, unambiguous Talmudic exhortation that if someone tries to kill you, you rise up and strike him first. That is unambiguously right there. And Western law has always followed that axiom, really. So, uh, you know, the notion here that um, that this ended the way it did, obviously, I think shines a spotlight on, the, on, on really exactly what Ben said, is that to the leftist kind of Soros-funded progressive prosecutor mentality to the Alvin Bragg, Kim Fox, and Cook County, Illinois, Chicago, obviously the recently recalled Chesa Boudin in San Francisco and George Guy Stone down in Los Angeles County, California. The victim, you know, the, the victim is uh, is is bad, and and the perpetrator is good. It, it is literally just what Ben said: is a complete just inversion of right and wrong. Good is bad, bad is good, up is down, and so forth. And you know what it reminds me of? Also, it reminds me of something that. Um, you know, my friend Daniel Horowitz, who's speaking of Twitter, I, th I think is still permanently banned. Uh, you know, he's at RM Conservative on Twitter. I think he received like a lifetime ban for speaking up against the efficacy of the vaxes. So, uh, you know, to tie these two threads together, Twitter and what's going on here. Anyway, Daniel is an, is an immigration hawk. And one thing that he has said for years and years is how our uniparty ruling class, when it comes to the immigration issue, to go back to Ben's segment on the victims of legal immigration from a week or two ago, what Daniel has always argued is that the ruling class views the illegal aliens, the people who are obviously criminals, as you know, as the victims, and the people who are then victimized by legal immigration, obviously, as the bad guys. So I see a direct correlation here between kind of the immigration issue and the progressive prosecutor project Soros issue. I think if Republicans can kind of tie those strands together, they have very, very, very effective fodder for this fall's midterms, because obviously this, this, the southern border is deeply porous and is wide open right now as well. So if they can kind of package those together, kind of this a time the idea of crime in urban areas, especially to the wide open southern border. That's a very attractive message, I think, for suburban moms, obviously, which is kind of a quintessential swing district that Republicans would do well to try to win back this fall. So with that, I'll kick it over to Inez. Sure. Um, to discuss something that probably a lot of the listeners have seen, um, at least clips of, this is an exchange between Senator Josh Hawley um, and a Democratic witness in an abortion hearing um, that happened on Tuesday. We're recording this a day later on Wednesday. Um, so there was this exchange, um, and, and it started when the senator noticed that the witness was using the phrase, people with a capacity for pregnancy, um, of course, instead of saying women um, or females. So there was, there was a back and forth, and, and the senator was asking her about uh, that, that phrase and why she was using that phrase. Of course, she said, men can get pregnant. And as Emily said in the intro to this, um, to this podcast, she then insisted very aggressively that men can get pregnant um, and then the, the the piece of the exchange that I just want to highlight before we talk about what it means or the importance of it, um, she said that asking her, merely asking her uh, to, to define that if she thinks that men are, uh, can get pregnant and suggesting that perhaps men cannot get pregnant, um, this was her response. She said, I want to recognize that your line of questioning is transphobic. It opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing them, to which the senator replied, you're saying that I'm going to get people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancy. Um, so this whole exchange was incredibly condescending, and, and this woman was very unlikable and, and enraging, but um, 
you know, and, and I, I know Josh has something to say about how the, the black pill of, of realizing that some people think that this was a reasonable exchange on her part, apparently. Um, but I, I actually want to talk about the importance of this uh, from a broader perspective. Obviously, uh, this shows how for the center of the Democratic Party has has shifted um, on on cultural issues that acknowledging that women are the ones who get pregnant is extremely controversial and apparently uh, is violent, is leading to violence. That in itself, that kind of radicalism being commonplace in a hearing um, is, is worth taking note, even if it's repetitive. We know we know this is where the left has been going for quite some time, but it's still worth you know stepping back and noting the absolute anti-reality radicalism um, of that kind of insistence. But, but the larger point here I want to make is that this woman is a UC Berkeley law professor, right? Um, she's not only been given all the honors by our, our institutions, right? And an incredibly uh, prestigious position where she teaches the next generation of folks who are going to be attorneys for the DOJ or for Y2 law firms or for um, you know every other sort of high echelon legal position, right? UC Berkeley is an extremely prestigious law school. This, this, this is really the larger um, context for this kind of craziness, right? Um, it should be really clear by now that campus craziness doesn't stay on campuses. Uh, but here again, we have this demonstration of how radical not just the legal profession has gotten, um, but but the legal profession as an avatar for virtually every credentialed position that is is uh, has access to the levers of power, whether those are inside or outside of government. Um, so this should just be a crystallized reminder uh, that in fact, our institutions are extremely bought in to an ever more radical version of, of this ideology or religion, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that, because the, the reason I bring this up, I think, is because it's easy to get, uh, maybe I, this is my role, I guess, always, especially vis-a-vis -vis Emily, but um, is to be the pessimist. It's easy to get a little bit too optimistic, I think, when we see two things. One, the numbers coming up in the midterms, and then, of course, the pessimism there is what are Republicans going to do with that power. Um, but, but second, because we see a lot of high-profile defectors, a lot of people who seem like, you can say, oh, like, at least there's a there's a reasonable majority out there. There seem to be people even from the center and the center left who are are horrified by the direction um, of, of the left uh, that more generally in the Democratic Party. Uh, there's a strong majority here. Um, there are reasonable people still in this country. And, and the reason that that can all be true and it's still we should still be very, very scared and pessimistic about the future of this country is because the institutions and the elites in this country are almost monolithically and religiously bought in to the most aggressive and far left version of wokeism. And that isn't changing anytime soon. In fact, it's going to get worse before it gets better um, because of, of the demographic turnover, uh, by which I mean Gen Z and, and younger millennials coming up through the ranks. Um, the, the, the folks that that this this witness is teaching in her law school classes in Berkeley, UC Berkeley today. So with that, um, I guess the questions for um, for the rest of the, the podcast would be, um, you know, what is the larger impact of this? How does it impact the midterms? But also, how does it impact how we should think um, about kind of the relative winning and losing here of, of, I don't even want to say the right and the left, sanity and this ideology? So, I mean, like a few, a few thoughts jump immediately to mind. First is, 
you know, I, I, I interned for Senator Michael Lee after my, my first year of law school summer. This, this is where Rachel would be really needed. I mean, we need Rachel for everything, obviously. We wish her well in her early motherhood. But as far as like Senate procedure is concerned, um, how was this not just, you know, how is it not like a gavel to order or anything like that? I mean, this seems really out of line, honestly, the way that the witness was treating Senator Hawley. That was one of my very first reactions from watching that particular exchange, which I thought Senator Hawley acquitted himself quite well. But to Inez's, you know, she referenced a tweet that I issued this morning. We're recording this on Wednesday. I, I basically said that this, what I saw is like the reaction to that exchange was a fairly blackpilling moment for me because it, it seemed like large swaths of the institutional left, I mean, the MSNBC, New York Times crowd, really thought that this law professor like won that exchange and like got him, like got Senator Hawley, like exposed him as like the transphobic bigot that he is. And I, I just cannot grok that. I mean, I, I cannot bring myself to even understand like this mentality. Like I cannot bring myself to understand someone who can watch that and think that this witness exposed the great, dark, nefarious, you know, transphobic, homophobic, racist, sexist, bigot Republican Party. But, you know, we really do live in two Americas. I mean, and there are certain kind of, you know, moments in time, flashes in a pan, so to speak, that really kind of shine a spotlight on this. And I think that this exchange does that. It kind of reminds me of what our friend Ryan Williams, the president of Claremont Institute, he gave an, a long interview, I think it was with Emma Green of the Atlantic last like October, maybe, or September or something, so sometime last fall. And he said that it, you, could, it, it, you can debate, it is debatable whether we are actually even more divided in the year 2021, 2022 than back in the 1850s, 1860s, because back then, you know, we still agreed by and large, even though we were so divided under uh, over the moral evil of chattel slavery, we were still a largely Christian nation that believed in God and so forth. Now we have people literally just openly defying Genesis 127, like a man is a woman, a woman is a man, and, and like it is accepted as, you know, capital S science. I mean, it's really just pessim pessimistic blackpilling stuff, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it, it's pessimistic blackpilling, inexplicable, all of those things are what come to mind. Um, but it's also, pretty strange from, as we've talked about many, many times, from the movement that purports to be supporting women. Um, but it's also like, this is how it gets into this being extremely, extremely, extremely Orwellian. Um, and that term feels overused and it feels cliche at this point. But what Orwell was really warning about is the manipulation of language to condition people to accept um, a new kind of reality that is beneficial only to elites. It's beneficial to the people in power. It's literally happening before our eyes and you will never find a better example of it than this. Um, not just what happened itself, but then the institutional left cheering it on. Um, and so when we say Orwellian, we think like creepy and weird and dystopic, but what he was really writing about was so specific as I know all of us realize that, but I, I feel like, you know, Orwellian just gets tossed around so much this time that maybe sometimes it loses its value um, because this is happening under our noses and it is specifically exactly what Orwell was writing about in a deeper sense, which means that elites are conditioning us um, and we are going right along with it. And that's, you know, when you see the media jump at something like this um, coming from a law professor. So you have how many institutions implicated just right there, the Senate Democrats brought her in. She is a law professor at Berkeley and 
the legacy media thought all of this was good. It, this is not just a throwaway moment. This is something so much more deeper and more serious. It's not just a silly sound bite. Um, it's not. It, it's it's not minor. Um, it's a it's an example of something that's happening that's very very serious, um, and we are being sort of uh, manipulated by the people in power. Um, to basically go along with a transhumanist agenda, um, and which is ultimately an anti-human agenda. And gosh, it sounds like Alex Jones 10 years ago talking about that, um, but it is really true and it's happening like in front of us and we're just sort of coasting. The first thing I'll say is I'm struck by the fact that the trust the science people now apparently believe that science is violence. And I'm not sure how they square that circle, and this goes back to also you know, to the point about the, the party that supposedly stands up for women, can't define what a woman is, won't define what a woman is, subject women to competition from men in sports, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it boggles the mind, but consistency is not the purpose here. Power and dividing people and imposing an identitarian ideology on society to to manipulate and exploit for power is the entire point of this. Uh, but I will say, I, you know, I was struck when I first saw the clip, you know, by the, the ignorance combined with the arrogance and condescension. But I actually think it perfectly captures the corruption and the decay of our elite institutions. You know, our elite institutions, particularly the academy, has been dominated by leftists, you know, for well over 100 years, pretty much. But at least those leftists knew and could articulate what the other side believed. They were well-read. They might have been evil and misguided, but they still read the Western canon, uh, understood that there was a way you were supposed to comport yourself, could debate. This was just, frankly, childish. And the way that she disrespected the senator, and I think that was enraging at a gut level to witness it, but not at all surprising and perfectly on brand and consistent with the character that we've seen of our elites in these institutions. And the last point I'll make is, despite the fact that it was another clownish display, this idea of essentially speech we don't like is violence. And then the response is, let's engage in a war on wrong thing, including a literal counter-terror campaign is what makes this not just ludicrous, but also completely dangerous. That the campus is not just in these elite institutions, but it's actually weaponized using the force of law and the national security apparatus mm. against Americans, which you know, I've been harping on for 18 months plus, but I think it's perfectly illustrated again in part in this exchange. Um, with that, I'll be happy to jump back and talk about you know, a very sad and tragic story, really a stunning story uh, that has unfolded in recent days, which is the assassination of Shinzo Abe, the longest tenured prime minister in Japan's history. And I'll start by talking about kind of some of the, the various takes from our political class and the media, and then jump into kind of actually what is the legacy of Shinzo Abe and what your all thoughts are on it. Um, so the first thing is, I just have to get out of the way, the White House's you know, letter of condolence, which is just enraging when it says, well, there are many details that we do not yet know we know that violent attacks are never acceptable and that gun violence always leaves a deep scar in the communities that are affected by it. What kind of sick mind when a person is assassinated, a leader, a head of state, former head of state is assassinated, has to work in the political line about quote unquote gun violence. No, a deranged person built this gun and then assassinated him. That's the story here. So once again, you know, our elites beclowning themselves 
uh, but with definitely serious consequences when this is really, you know, this is the seminal issue that they highlight when you're talking about a head of state and, and a vital partner, by the way, to America's national interest being assassinated here. Um, I also found that the media always reveals so much more about itself than the people and subjects that it's covering. And we certainly saw this here. So NPR, what does it do? It labels Shinzo Abe in a tweet, a quote unquote divisive arch conservative. And they later modified to ultra nationalist. And this nationalist versus internationalist theme is definitely apparent depending upon the perspective and the source of the various takes on Shinzo Abe's legacy. So the New York Times, once again, I'm gonna I'm overusing this word today, but clownishly lumps Shinzo Abe in an article, I believe this was by David Leonard, with the world's modern breed of nationalist leaders alongside Viktor Orban in Hungary, Vladimir Putin in Russia, Xi Jinping in China, and Donald Trump in the US. They are so lacking in nuance and so hackish that they have to group and lump all of these figures together. Of course, you know, creating guilt by association, I guess, here, but the notion that Orban, Abe, and Trump are in league with Putin and Xi Jinping here is laughable, ludicrous, lacking in all nuance, completely disingenuous here. But then they go on to label him a force for democratic internationalism. Interestingly, Matthew Pottinger, who had plenty of dealings with Japanese leadership and was the leader, one of the key leaders in the Trump administration's China policy, wrote uh, on the uh, on the event of Shinzo Abe's assassination, that Abe should be credited with defining the concept of an Indo-Pacific and a free and open Indo-Pacific was sort of the vision uh, that the Trump administration and other allies in the region have sought to foster and protect. He wrote, and I quote here, the Chinese Communist Party understands the power of terminology in shaping people's thinking. It directed its diplomats to warn neighboring countries never to say Indo-Pacific. The threats failed, however, and the term spread. Southeast Asians announced a new Indo-Pacific outlook. Capitals as far as Brussels and Berlin drafted Indo-Pacific strategies. Paris promoted a curiously announced Indo-Pacific axis. By defining the region on their own terms, not China's, countries took a stand for their national sovereignty. Abe understood sovereignty as a basis for solidarity between nations, no matter their form of government, when confronted by neighbors dreaming of empire. Even countries that may not be entirely free at home still want to be free from coercion from abroad. Hence the standing ovation Mr. Trump received in Vietnam after he spoke of a free and open Indo-Pacific as a beautiful quote here, beautiful constellation of nations, each its own bright star, satellites to none. Mm -hmm. uh, Abe's party ultimately won sweeping supermajorities in the parliamentary elections that were held this past weekend. He was out stumping for uh, one leader in his party then. Uh, worth noting, Chinese social media celebrated the assassination in some quarters of Shinzo Abe, in part because of what I think his major legacy was, and I'll be interested to hear what you all think about it, his wanting to confront communist China and really moving to confront communist China and build defenses against it uh, well before much of the rest of the West. And, and to me, Abe's whole legacy is being a Japanese leader, willing, ready, willing, and able to confront China. And also, of course, helping build many of the mechanisms and institutions internally and externally to combat it, including helping foster the development of the so-called quad partnership, now burgeoning with the US, Australia and India to counter Japan, also developing a national security apparatus and national security council within Japan, substantially increasing defense spending, and also seeking to amend their constitution. It's particularly the peace or no war clause uh, to at minimum recognize 
Japan's defense forces, which on a dime can be turned offensive and which may have to be, depending upon what happens both with North Korea slash South Korea, as well as in Taiwan and beyond. So to me, the real legacy of Shinzo Abe is turning Japan from a pacifist nation to one that recognizes the stakes and would be an essential, essential ally in countering China's hegemonic bid. And I think that ought to be the real takeaway from his role. And the last point I'll make is, you know, it's very strange to me how little coverage there really has been of the assassin here. And I'm curious what you all think about that as well. So I, I'll jump in here. Um, I, I am profoundly disturbed and rattled by this story, to be honest with you. It like really affected me in a way that like deeper than I thought it would. I'm kind of a lifelong Japanophile. I've been to Japan twice. Both times I was there was under Prime Minister Abe's premiership. Actually, the second time that I was there, I went with a, a an AJC American Jewish Committee kind of like young leadership, young professional delegation. We didn't meet with Prime Minister Abe, but we met with one of his high ranking advisor councils, kind of like the the Kellyanne Conway equivalent, if you will. Um, so the fact that this happened is just unfathomable. Um, it, I, it, and I guess Occam's razor would suggest that it was a lone crazy assassin. If you take him seriously, he has objections to a religious order that in his kind of crazed mind he associated with Prime Minister Abe. It, you know, at face value, it does not appear here that there is a Chinese Communist Party Xi Jinping connection, but that's certainly where my mind immediately jumped to. I think Ben is right to flag that as as some sort of lingering possibility in the background here, because Abe obviously was a Japanese nationalist, and he, you know, for from Japan's perspective, he knew what time it was. He knew that the he knew that the time in Japan was no longer Hiroshima in 1945, but the time was a fundamentally different era with a Chinese communist hegemon, and that Japan had to rearm itself. It had to kind of get past this one percent of of GDP barrier as far as military spending is concerned. He really moved the ball forward. He was a fantastic ally of the U.S. You know, he, he was kind of an anchor of the Quad Alliance between the U.S., Australia, India, and Japan there, which kind of takes on the the, the posture, obviously, of, of a Beijing containment alliance there. And, you know, look, I'll, I'll flag, um, we're recording this on Wednesday. We have a great op-ed at Newsweek today by uh, Joshua Walker, who is the president of the Japan Society um, it's it's just a really nice op-ed. Uh, Joshua knew uh, Prime Minister Abe personally quite well, and just uh, look the outpouring of support from folks like um, like Ken Weinstein of the Hudson Institute, who was nominated to be Trump's ambassador to Japan, ultimately didn't didn't quite get it. Uh, 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 folks like uh, Senator Bill Haggerty, who was formerly stationed in Japan. The outpouring of love and support from folks on the right side of the American Isle has been uplifting, and I've been I, I, I've enjoyed seeing that. I think it's fitting for for a man who did a lot of good. But uh, to Ben's point, I mean, this extremely, extremely sloppy and tendentious viewing as him as kind of this arch nationalist figure who's in cahoots with Putin. Uh, it's just nonsense. The Chinese hated Prime Minister Abe. So the fact that he was ever in cahoots with the authoritarian actors there is just bat crap insane. I guess I'll, I'll just add, I mean, I don't know nearly enough about Indo-Pacific relations or nearly as much as Ben or Josh, but, um, you know, obviously that this is, um, this is a kind of incident that should shake us a little bit. It feels perhaps more like Reagan being shot by the guy who was in love with Jodie Foster than any um, larger political uh, sort of uh, plot or, or um, 
um, you know, anything beyond this, this one crazy guy, at least uh, uh, at this point, but it still feels like it's underscoring that sort of bumpy reentry into history right after, um, especially after the, the sort of post war, especially post Cold War period, um, the 90s, right, this all felt very, very much, uh, and I, I hate citing this phrase just because it would irritate, I, I feel like it's one of the most irritating things in the world is, is that um, Fukuyama always gets tagged with this phrase, the end of history, in fact, the essay is not really making that argument, um, but nevertheless, there was that feeling of the end of history, right, um, and, and that certainly has not been the experience of the United States since 9-11 really but um for sure in the last uh five to seven years and and um i think this is this is part of our unsettled feeling about this kind of assassination of of a major world leader um it, it just it just feels like things are increasingly unstable and unpredictable um after a period of, of relative predictability so that's exactly where i was going to go with it and i was actually going to smoothly uh transition into final thoughts on that point um because there is this sense of instability that actually makes a lot of um like logically it makes a lot of sense when you think about the fact that we've just gone through two and a half years um of obvious instability caused by a pandemic which um we know came out of communist China um, and just destabilized the entire world. I mean, what's happening in Sri Lanka, we didn't talk about um, in, in terms of the sort of ecological disaster there, but a lot of it was also caused by the pandemic. It was caused by tourism um, plummeting during the, during the pandemic and all of these things. Um, so my final thought is, is really the same as my, my point just now um, on this assassination feeling like it's part of something um, deeper about all of this, um, about you know what, what's, what's going on in the world because the world just went through the, one thing we almost take for granted. It's like, we all just went through the same experience. It, it was experienced very differently, whether you lived in uh, Texas or New York, whether you lived in Norway or Somalia um, or Sri Lanka or Japan. Um, but we all just went through the same threat of the same virus, and it's uh, had a dramatic effect on every single corner of the earth, seemingly, um, every single populated corner of the earth. And uh, that's, I think, contributing to this. Um, we see it, especially in higher education and in K through 12 education, there's some sirens behind me, perhaps proving my point at this very moment, uh, but it, it does seem like the something is off in the world. Um, and the just the last thing I would say is we talk about this all the time. Um, that's gonna happen more frequently uh, to Fukuyama's point, actually, which a lot of people don't understand, um, if anything, we're going to keep feeling like um, we're we're teetering, um, you know, the because the the cycle of history has sort of been accelerated by globalization and technology, um, and and it certainly feels like that's the case here. So it's been a very active past week, and there's like a one major story that we haven't even addressed on this hour. So I feel like it's probably worth mentioning, of course, which is the collapse of the Boris Johnson-led Conservative Party coalition in Parliament in London. So Bojo kind of came to office in 2019 amidst kind of a, a, a fervent promise to actually make Brexit happen. So Brexit, of course, was the shot heard around the world in June of 2016. You know, David Cameron, Theresa May, a lot of these kind of more establishmentarian conservative party elites and Tories kind of tried to kind of dilly dally and they and, and they tried to basically find any possible legal or political loophole to get their way out of it and keep the UK within the uh, the ambit of Brussels and the EU. 
Boris, to his immense credit, was kind of a hard. Well, I, he, he was he was a, he was a fairly hardcore Brexiteer. I mean, he basically did ascend to 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 Parliament in 2019 on the promise and and his signature came, you know, his signature promise that he made to uh, you know effectuate Brexit. He kept. I mean, promises made, promises kept. He got the UK out of the EU. So I think he will always be remembered for that, and and he should be remembered fondly for that. On the flip side of that. You know, I, it is worth pointing out that I think that there are some red flags here and some possible lessons to be learned from a more skeptical vantage point as far as how right of center governance ought to go. And, you know, specifically, uh, Boris Johnson, he definitely embraced kind of the, the Davos World Economic Forum talking points as far as kind of trade policy in general, as far as, uh, as certainly as far as kind of the COVID lockdowns are concerned here. And in a lot of other ways, I know kind of the base of the Tory party there in the UK felt fairly betrayed by them, even if he did kind of uphold his word and deed on, on his signature campaign, campaign promise. So to the extent that we can extrapolate lessons to the US or really to any kind of other kind of Western democracies in general here, the lesson would be, you know, uh, stand for something don't necessarily just join kind of in a party blob you know it's kind of the, it's kind of the reaganite mantra about kind of bold colors right broad stripes kind of like make an actual difference between you and your opposition in the uk for decades and decades unfortunately the tories and certainly post margaret thatcher have really trended towards that kind of uniparty kind of tony blair david cameron kind of neoliberal consensus so, you know, we'll see what happens as far as who the Tory re replacement is, um, you know, to make another kind of a shameless Newsweek promotion. We had a good op-ed from our buddy Raheem Kassam of the National Post, who kind of, uh, you know, Raheem was very involved in Brexit in 2016 with Nigel Farage. He kind of lays out some of the candidates and where they stand. So I would encourage the, the listeners and viewers to check that out. But, you know, for now, um, uh, there's a, been a lot of negative reaction to Bojo, and I definitely mentioned some of that. But I do think it is worth emphasizing that he made Brexit happen. And that's that's a really big deal. And he deserves immense credit for that. I'll just be really brief um, and just flag the Sri Lanka story is a huge story, and it's actually a story of Western elites uh, exporting the worst ideas, particularly around ESG, and that leading to the destruction, the toppling of a country, the wasting of natural resources. Uh, this is a perfect, perfect example sort of of you know, it's sort of like socialism everywhere. It's the best idea. And then everywhere it's tried, it's a disaster. Well, this is a perfect example of the Western elite's perfect ideas being implemented and then leading to the fall, the demise of a country, needlessly so, I guess in some ways analogous to Venezuela with its abundant natural resources, particularly oil. Um, I commend everyone to read a couple pieces on the green elites and how they destroyed Sri Lanka, particularly uh, Brendan O'Neill at Spiked and then Michael Schellenbarger, I believe on the Common Sense Substack, just had excellent pieces on this. This is a story we ought to probably cover uh, in a subsequent week and it ought to be flagged. And naturally that's why it's not getting the coverage that it ought to get from our legacy media, which of course is culpable in propagandizing around and spreading to America and beyond the very same ideas that have destroyed Sri Lanka this year. Um, so I guess I'll close on an uncharacteristically optimistic note. Um, there, there are some really good indications that American universities are 
uh, in a lot of trouble. Uh, and, and that's because um, enrollment has been declining. I mean, so enrollment in American universities has actually been declining slowly for about a decade. That has more to do with just the ebb and flow of sort of the demographic bubble. Um, remember, millennials are the largest generation uh, in American history, where the children of the previously largest generation in American history, baby boomers, right? So. Um, considerably on either 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 end of us right so gen x and and um, gen z are considerably smaller uh, generations so some of this is is natural but it is also incredibly been accelerated by the pandemic it's been accelerated by very unreasonable policies that universities are putting in place where you know you have kids paying fifty thousand dollars a year um, to be locked in their dorm rooms and take classes online um so so a lot of this has been accelerated by the pandemic and the response to the pandemic um, but it's also been accelerated by increasing surveys that show that American families do not see the value proposition um, in, in a university degree anymore. They do not see it the same way as they saw it 10 years ago or certainly 20 years ago. The, the large part of this has to do with the debt burden on, on millennials coming out of universities and the relative um, insignificance uh, of their degree relative in time, again, going back. Um, but I think a lot of this is also cultural. I think um, if you look at trust in universities as an institution, it's fallen completely off the map, even uh, a majority with a majority of Americans saying answering no to the question, do you think universities are net positive for the United States? And that really did begin somewhere around 2015, right? So when you really see this sort of wokeness explode off the campus and into the mainstream, you see a huge drop off um, led by, of course, Republicans, but also by independents. So essentially, universities are now fully democratic aligned institutions that they always have been, but the public sees them for what they are now um, and doesn't accord them nearly as much, and I'm going to use Spencer Clavin's terms here, nearly as many honors as they used to. That is an unbelievably good thing. It is a good, like more faster is what I have to say um, to that. And, and to put a final point on it, you know, the, the pipeline of uh, sort of elite credentialing and honors um, is, is a it's essentially a collar around the neck of a, of a lot of people who know that the direction of this country culturally is going to send us off a cliff. Um, I think that's really demonstrable, especially in, in um, kind of the, the tier of extremely elite prep schools that feed into the Ivy League. Um, these are private schools and you have parents who are paying $54,000 a year um, and they are appalled with the, the wokeness in the schools. They're appalled with the uh, you know blatantly racist uh, material the schools are teaching their children um, the, to teach them to be guilty about their their skin color um, or, or their their sex and gender and then there's the entire bubble of gender ideology to deal with uh, as well so there are a lot of parents at these very elite schools who are paying fifty four thousand dollars a year and very upset with the direction of the school but the reason they won't leave is because they're still attached desperately attached to making sure that their kids go to harvard uh, that is something i think increasingly uh, we're going to have to let go of. And actually the American people, especially I think working in middle-class American people are letting go uh, of the idea that universities are anything close to what they were 20, 30 years ago, and certainly you know, 50 or 100 years ago. So um, I think that that's actually some reason for optimism that the American people are recognizing what universities actually are, and they are rejecting the increasingly um, not worth it value proposition of, of going into them. Well, on behalf of Ben, Inez, and Josh, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.